thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, James Titko. Coming up, what did we learn from Boris Johnson's appearance at the COVID inquiry? Then we'll hear from the team that's developing a new drug in the fight against the United States fentanyl crisis. And a bit later on. When the results came back, it turned out that it's around 5,000 years ago when these trees were growing. We'll hear about the discovery and fate of an ancient woodland. From Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education, this is The Naked Scientists. The UK's former Prime Minister Boris Johnson has told the Covid inquiry that he should have realised just how serious the virus was sooner than he did. Mr Johnson added that it was necessary to lock down the country to control the virus in March 2020 and that no other option was available. Here's a clip. I look at all this stuff in which we seem so oblivious with, with, with horror now. I mean, we, we, we should, have, we should have, have twigged. We should collectively have twigged much sooner. I should have twigged. Boris Johnson speaking at the COVID inquiry. So, what did we learn? I've been speaking to George Parker, political editor at the Financial Times. He's been striking a sort of contrite, quite a serious tone, not the kind of demeanour one necessarily um, associates with Boris Johnson. There was a time this week where he looked slightly emotional as he looked back at the, the very sad events of 2020. But generally, the big takeaway from this is that he admitted that the government vastly underestimated the danger of COVID and the threat that faced the country in those crucial weeks leading up to the pandemic arriving in the UK. In response to the fact that Britain has experienced some of the worst excess deaths across Europe, he couched the fact that we've got an elderly population and the densely populated nature of our population as excuses. That was my kind of assertion. How do those stack up? You're right. Certainly in the earliest phase of the um, the pandemic, Britain's um, excess death rates were much higher than many other comparable countries. And the fact we live in a relatively densely populated country is faintly risible. I mean, the previous health secretary, Matt Hancock, the guy who was in charge of the health department at the time, thinks that many thousands of lives could have been saved at Britain lockdown earlier. But Boris Johnson has been admitting that basically we didn't lock down earlier because nobody was really taking it all that seriously. And as an illustration of that point, Boris Johnson went away on holiday for a week at the end of February and didn't share his first meeting on the subject until the beginning of March, You know, literally three weeks before the whole country was closed down. He started yesterday with an apology, one that had been leaked beforehand. Now, leaking is par for the course in politics, of course, but perhaps less so in the kind of legal sphere. And I wonder if that will have rubbed the inquirers up the wrong way right from the get go. 
I think so. Look, I mean, there, there are other aspects of um, Boris Johnson's interaction with the inquiry, which will have wound them up. And as you say, there was the advanced briefing of what he was going to say. There was the disclosure that some of his WhatsApp messages relating to the first lockdown had disappeared from his phone. This was the phone, you probably remember, which he switched yeah. and then had to be opened by security. The fact that WhatsApp messages on his phone were unavailable to the inquiry, that for some technical reason that nobody could quite get their head around, uh, those are WhatsApps relating to the first crucial lockdown period. So, look, I mean, they'll be glad to have him in front of the inquiry for two days. And I think he's been given a fairly rigorous going over by the legal counsel. As we're on the subject... The communications going on between members of the government over the past couple of years and their teams at the Times has also been the focus of the inquiry. There's been obscenity-ridden ones. There are ones questioning the faculties of the people in the top jobs. Now, Mr Johnson said, well, he essentially shrugged his shoulders and said, that's just par for the course in politics. You've covered UK and European politics for many years. Is that your analysis? I think the thing is that WhatsApp has replaced in modern politics what used to be oral snatched conversations between colleagues in corridors and around the photocopier. So people say things in WhatsApp messages they might say in a normal conversation, which exposed to the harsh light of day appear intemperate or unprofessional. Having said that, there's no doubt that Boris Johnson ran an extremely chaotic and dysfunctional government, which reflected his own personality. There was an atmosphere of suspicion. There was a feeling that Boris Johnson changed his mind from one day to the next. So it's not my experience of covering British politics for 30 odd years that that is normally the way things are done in government. And you know, I think it's certainly true that Boris Johnson had exactly the wrong kind of personality type for the crisis that we saw. The inquiry's aim is to learn the lessons from COVID. Are you able to distill what those might be? Or is it too early to tell with the testimony of so many still yet to come? I think it's a little bit too early. I think there's a danger. I think people have discussed this, that the the inquiry has been seen very much through the prism of people settling scores and the, you know, the lurid WhatsApp messages that you were just referring to there. And it's more like the equivalent of putting people in the stocks, which I think has a cathartic value to the country, actually, because people want to see people in the dock, in inverted commas, and being held to account. But in terms of lessons learned, I mean, like, I think the most important lesson to be learned is how do we prepare for possible um, pandemics in the future? And you certainly wouldn't want to prepare for it in the way that the UK government did in the early, early weeks of 2020. No preparation for acquiring protective personal protective equipment, no preparation for acquiring testing facilities for COVID, and basically no forward planning about the possibility that we might need to go into a lockdown, even though that was already some a policy was taking effect in other countries in the world, including China and Italy. So advanced planning is obviously going to be one of the big lessons to be drawn out of this whole process. Political editor of the Financial Times, George Parker. The US President Joe Biden recently called his country's fentanyl crisis an American tragedy. And it's not hard to see why. The powerful drug contributed to 75,000 deaths in the United States last year, and there are concerns that the synthetic opioid could also soon wash up on European shores. In a bid to stop people from dying from fentanyl abuse, a company called Cessation Therapeutics has been developing novel antibody therapies designed to block the potent effects of the drug. I began by asking the company's chief scientific officer, Dr Andy Barrett, to explain the dangers associated with fentanyl. It's a highly potent opioid, and it's being made in clandestine labs, typically in Mexico, where 
the purity and potency of the fentanyl is not always known. So people who use the drug don't always know exactly how much they're using. And because even small changes in the, the dose of fentanyl can lead to toxicity and death, this creates a very dangerous environment for chronic drug use. Currently, the best way to save someone who is overdosing on fentanyl is by administering naloxone, commonly known by its trade name Narcan. These canisters have been a real lifesaver, haven't they? They, they absolutely have. Narcan is an indispensable medication that is widely available here in the United States and in other countries. Even with the widespread availability of Narcan, we continue to see an all-time high of fentanyl-related overdose deaths. One of the reasons is because it is very difficult to get to people fast enough to reverse fentanyl's effects. Fentanyl can produce life-threatening respiratory depression or very slow breathing in a matter of two to three minutes. And it can be very difficult to get to people in time. Many drug users use drugs alone in their their homes and they're found the next morning. So we clearly need other strategies, preventative strategies to prevent these overdoses from happening in the first place. How have you worked to try and overcome the limitations of Narcan? We're taking a novel approach. It's a paradigm shift in the management of overdoses. We're trying to prophylactically prevent these fentanyl-related overdoses in high-risk individuals who are already using opioids. So we're trying to administer a treatment, a monoclonal antibody that binds up fentanyl and, and prevents these overdoses from happening. Let's dig in a little bit deeper into exactly how your new therapy works. We have a monoclonal antibody that is targeted to fentanyl. And so if fentanyl is administered, it binds it up in the bloodstream very avidly and prevents it from getting to the brain. Fentanyl getting to the brain is where it produces its problems. Fentanyl binds to the brainstem that's responsible for breathing and basically shuts that area down. The antibody, again, prevents fentanyl. It binds it up in the bloodstream, kind of Pac-Mans it up, and prevents uh, those high concentrations of fentanyl from ever getting to the brain. And the obvious advantage of your treatment, as you've described it, is that it can be used in advance. How long does it offer protection from a fentanyl overdose for? So we've shown in in, uh, primate models that a single administration of the antibody can block potentially lethal doses of fentanyl for approximately a month, 28 days. How much does it cost compared to Narcan? We still have a lot of drug development to do. We haven't put a cost on it. Um, Narcan is over the counter now, and so it is relatively cheap. However, we do think this can be priced in a manner that's commensurate with other once monthly products that are available for opioid use disorder. There are certain products that contain a drug called buprenorphine that ameliorates withdrawal and craving symptoms. And we think it could be priced uh, on par with those types of drugs. Obviously, as vital as these treatments are towards saving lives of those with opioid dependency, there's still the need, of course, to grapple with the root causes of the current crisis. And they'll need to be addressed 
alongside this strategy? So about five or six years ago, most of the fentanyl was coming from China, a lot of it via mail. There has been clamping down on raw materials there. What is happening is those raw materials are being shipped to Mexico, where fentanyl is being manufactured in clandestine labs and then shipped to the United States via overland trafficking or sometimes in the mail. Some of those precursors are used in other chemicals that are important, so it's difficult to totally outlaw them. With respect to, you know, variations in synthetic opioids over time and what could be next, fentanyl is extremely easy to manufacture and it's extremely cheap. And drug users seem to really like its effects. It costs about 10% as much as heroin to produce. You don't need poppy fields. You don't need farmers uh, as you would with with heroin. You can make it in a, a, a tiny clandestine lab enough to make millions of dollars uh, in a single batch. There have been reports of other synthetic opioids, but fentanyl still accounts for the vast majority of the illicit drug supply. About 60% of all opioids that are seized contain fentanyl or structurally, structurally related fentanyl analogs for which our molecule um, would also work against. That was Andy Barra at Cessation Therapeutics, and you can find out much more about their work in the journal Nature Communications. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, James Titko. Still to come, why is the UK building a new space telescope system in Cyprus? But first, the discovery of preserved wood by farmers in the east of England has led Cambridge scientists to determine the presence and fate of an ancient forest. We'll tingle with this report. Great scientific tales often come from unusual places or accidental discoveries, just ask Alexander Fleming. And this tale of ancient trees is no different. This story begins with a lone brave traveller wading through harsh conditions and trying to garner sympathy by saying something like, I'm in the cold winds of the fens in the east of England. I'm in the cold winds of the fens in the east of England. To watch a mystery unravel, usually known for being a place that is flat and somewhat featureless, unidentified and strangely shaped wood has been piling up on farmland in this area after being ploughed out of fields. I'm here to speak to one of the people that has been amassing a sizeable collection. I'm Chris Beaver, farm manager for JEG Farms, managing land in this area and the other side, Boston. When I heard about this story originally and I was told that there was some mystery wood being unearthed on farms in this area, I was expecting one or two trees. This is an insane amount of wood in front of us. Just how much do you think there is? There'll be at least 70 tonne here, yeah, dragged out over a lot of years. Is it just a case of it turning up in the soil as you plough? Basically, yes, it does tend to move around there. So deep cultivations do pull it out. But then if we can't pull it out the first year, generally we'll mark it and go back the second year, just being aware of where it is. And it's uh, it normally moves in the soil and uh, it's nothing but a pain. Something I feel like we should appreciate is that there is 
fascinating scientific value to this but from a practical farming term this is not what you want at all no no it's just difficult to deal with on a day-to-day basis we'll go around autumn cultivations and then we'll have to go around and pick up the bog oak the trees heap them up again and then spring cultivations exactly the same it's almost good that it turned out to be so old and unusual because otherwise this would be utterly (laughs) utterly pointless yeah i mean there must be some value in it but uh, it's a question of realizing the value of it what did you think it was when you first saw it did you just assume there was no real significance to it everyone calls it bog oak we know it's old yeah we don't know there's any real value in it but the actual age is no one was really interested i assume it wasn't a direct line of communication with you but did you get in contact with the university did the university get in contact with this group of farmers and and how was this relationship established yeah i assume my predecessor got in contact with tatiana about this and yeah then she got in contact with me eventually so very luckily one of the farmers contacted the department saying that hey guys, I have lots of wood here on the edge of my field. Is there any interest? This is Tatiana Bebchuk. She's a PhD student at the University of Cambridge's Department of Geography and was one of the people tasked with unlocking the secrets of this dead forest. Luckily, my supervisor gets very excited when he hears about the wood. So he went to the field, took a sample of the wood because he had no idea of how old it is. When the results came back, he was even more excited because it turned out that it's around 5,000 years ago when these trees were growing. Trees are very useful for telling us the recent history of the climate. Since they grow more in warmer, wetter years, the rings are further apart when you look at a cross-section of the trunk. So, what kind of snapshot do these preserved trees give us about the fens 5,000 years ago? Since we find so many trees, it means that there were woodlands. The species that we find are yew trees, so Taxus baccata, later name, and uh, oak trees. We then see that uh, these trees established themselves in the area around 5,200 years ago, and they were growing in uh, favorable for them conditions. However, we do see that some of the trunks have what is called adventitious roots, so roots that are produced when a tree starts to be buried. So it means that while these trees were growing, something was going on in the landscape, in the topography, right? Then we see that all these trees die and they get preserved. So all together, we kind of can bring these pieces of puzzle and reconstruct the environmental story, which for us now looks like As this area is very flat and is basically situated at the sea level, it was very much affected by sea level. So if the sea level rises, rivers don't have as much flow to pass the water to the sea so that it gets flooded with fresh water. And under freshwater logging conditions, peat starts accumulating. So that's what was burying the trees, but then... The question remains what actually killed the trees. And as we see that these trees produce adventurous roots, it means that they were not killed by peat. They could overcome it. So our current hypothesis is that this species is intolerant to salt water and salt aerosols. So the rapid sea level rise or increased storminess could lead to decline of the trees. On a geological timescale, sea levels rise and fall all the time. What do you think drove this one in particular? And was there anything significant about it? So I can't yet say what drove this sea level rise. But we do see some 
interconnections on a global scale between the disappearance of these trees and some other major climatic events 4,200 years ago when these trees disappeared. We know that there was a mega drought in Asia and uh, Middle East, which potentially led to the collapse of three major civilizations, such as Old Kingdom in Egypt, Harappa in India and Mesopotamia. So we can kind of uh, see that there, there are these teleconnections and uh, we just have to explore if that's what was in 4,200 years ago. It is remarkable to think that relatively recently the flat featureless fens were a sprawling forest of oaks and elms. But mega droughts, rising sea levels, collapsing civilizations Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Should we continue to burn fossil fuels and allow climate change to shape our weather systems and landscapes, areas such as the fens, a place of home, food and wildlife, could well find themselves in very deep water. Will Tingle Now, the UK has announced that it will be building a new ground-based space telescope system in Cyprus. The project, known as NIX-Alpha, will monitor objects in geostationary orbit around 36,000 kilometres above Earth's equator. We put in a call to the space scientist and author David Whitehouse to ask him why the UK was so interested in a new telescope. One thing that the United Kingdom can do as part of its contribution to the if you like, the Western alliance of space powers is to help understand what's known as space situational awareness, which means what is up there, who's put it there, and what it's doing. It's not just a question of, oh, our satellites, our television, our broadcast, our military satellites are in geostationary orbit. Let's just look up there. You've got to take into account the position of the sun, the time of day or night, because there are certain times of the day when you can see into geostationary orbit and see what's there. And there's certain times of day and indeed times of the year when you can't. So what China and Russia may well do with this type of orbit is they might use the fact that it it's it's possible to hide in space, hide in these these orbits. Therefore, you've got to develop the data processing techniques and the time of observing to make sure you can spot what they're doing. So this telescope is an addition to the very important area of space situation awareness. It's not a very large telescope, but then again, telescopes these days with sensitive detectors um, at their focus can be very good at looking at objects uh, orbiting the Earth. Certainly, seems like we're entering a new era of Mm. warfare, essentially, which is a bit of a scary thought. As well as that contribution to the Western defence space collaboration that you touch on, One of the things we know the UK is genuinely world leading on in the domain of space is the manufacture of satellites. So I suppose it makes sense that we're seeking to improve the accuracy with which we can monitor those precious assets and where they might be at any given time. There are hundreds and hundreds more satellites being launched every year. Small satellites for specific purposes, of which Britain, as you said, is is very good at doing this. But we also, in this country, build the very big satellites as well. And they are expensive. Although small satellites are cheap individually, you still have to buy a rocket to launch them. You still have to launch them with another rocket. And you launch a lot of them en masse. And look at the conflict in the Ukraine. Elon Musk's internet connectivity satellites fly over Ukraine very regularly, but they've been able to 
if you like, disable or degrade their usefulness over conflict zones so that they're not seen as assisting too much in any one particular mm. side for political reasons. And that involves knowing where everything is, knowing what it's doing, knowing where other people are. And you could say there are signs that the American military in particular has paid a great deal of attention as to everybody's space assets that fly over the Ukraine at the moment. It's interesting you touch on SpaceX, a private space enterprise, and how they're starting to become a prominent force in space when it's previously been the domain of the state. And this Nix Alpha project shares that collaborative element between private and publicly funded space enterprises, doesn't it? You are quite right. Nix Alpha is done, I think, by a, a small startup company. It's only been around for a year or two called Space Flux. And it's a fairly interesting startup in the sense that the technology is not fantastically advanced. You need a telescope, a clear sight. That's why it's in Cyprus, better weather, better view of the sky than you get in this country. And there is uh, a need actually for a more widespread global array of telescopes for this space situational awareness, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, where there are very few observatories which look at this type of thing. Because if you've got a, a satellite that's annoying an American military satellite in geostationary orbit, you can actually move it out of the way. And at the moment, you cannot track it. It literally disappears uh, until you see it come back in and perhaps threaten or surveil the satellite again. So this small telescope is presumably going to be one of the a new range of telescopes. And this is already happening in the United States, where private companies provide vital information about space awareness to the military, of which Britain is becoming a, a part of, that's going to spread more around the world. And I think you can expect to see more such satellites uh, in the southern Atlantic, in Australia, and perhaps even in Antarctica. That was the space scientist and author David Whitehouse. And now it's time for Question of the Week. This one was sent in by listener David. What are black holes made of? Would it be based on subatomic particles? To help us this week, I'm joined by Ben Alanak, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge. How are you, Ben? I'm very good, thank you, James. I'm on holiday in Cornwall at the moment. Oh, well, thank you for taking a little bit of time out to speak with us. We better start, Ben, with what a black hole actually is. What happens is that things collapse in the universe through gravity. Interstellar gas um, that's just hanging around in the universe and stars, they collapse and gravity pulls it all together. And so it forms a very dense bit of matter. Uh, and sometimes that matter is so dense that it will suck light back into itself. And so that's what happens, basically. The black is the absence of light because it's just been sucked back in by the gravity. So no no light hits your eyeball. And so, you you know, the absence of light looks black. So that's what a black hole is. It's a surface around a very dense object, which is in the middle of it, probably, where the light gets sucked back into the middle. So the short answer is it's made up of the things, the gas, the objects that it sucks towards the middle of it. Exactly. But the problem is they all end up being very densely compressed in the middle and we don't fully know what goes on there. What's likely to happen is instead of atoms and things, you've got subatomic particles, but they're at such high pressures and temperatures, we don't really know how they behave right in the middle. You can describe it with equations and the equations have in 
the simple equations have infinities in it and it's probably a lot more complicated than we than we know so we're reaching the edge of scientific knowledge about what's happening right in the center but the bit that we see as a black hole that we understand it's this it's this sphere around it that uh, where the light gets sucked back in and you touch there on the second part of David's question, which is the particles that are getting sucked into the singularity, the, for all intents and purposes, the dot in the middle, are getting changed into subatomic particles when they're in there. And that's up for debate. They certainly will when they get close to the centre because they'll get heated up. The temperature will break the atoms apart. So there will be a stage, at least, where they're subatomic particles and actually we know you know, in in the sense that we know how they behave. But when they get heated up more beyond any experiments we've been able to do and, you know, things we've been able to test, then we're not really sure how they're going to behave after that. Something quite unusual might happen, we don't know. Thanks to Ben Alanak. And next week, we'll be answering this question from one of our younger listeners. How many nuclear bombs destroy Jupiter? The question on everybody's lips, how to trigger nuclear Armageddon in Jupiter. Let's see how we get on with that one. If you've got a question of your own, please email us. It's chris at nakedscientist.com or join the conversation on our forum at nakedscientist.com slash forum. Now, just before we go, I'd also like to say a big thank you to Keaton, who says, thanks, we keep him abreast of the latest science and technology. Charles David James, who says, another year of quality, interesting and engaging programmes. Thanks, James, who's listening down under. And August, who joins us from Belgium. Thank you, August. Now, quality journalism of the type you hear on The Naked Scientist is costly to produce, so we do rely heavily on you, our listeners, to help us to keep going. If you listen and enjoy the programme, feel free to show your support by making a donation. It really does make a massive difference, especially if it's a regular sponsorship and every little helps. We've made it really easy and secure. NakedScientist.com slash donate. That's all for this programme. Join us on Tuesday when we'll launch our new series of Titans of Science with the world-famous astronaut stroke rock star Chris Hadfield. It's a cracker, so please tune in for that. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm James Titko. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.